The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. All right, you may be seated. And as you're doing that, uh, if you're familiar with uh, our routine here, you can go ahead and uh, open your copy of the Bible to that passage, Mark 12. 41, thank you very much. Mark 12, 41 to 44 will be our text this morning. My name is Matt, if I don't know you, one of the pastors here, really thankful uh, to be able to consider God's word with you uh, as a group. And uh, though the outside 95 degree sunny day doesn't show it, fall is on the way, uh, perhaps, maybe. By Christmas, it'll cool off a little bit. Uh, But even if it doesn't, uh, the fall traditions are upon us, which means busy calendars, pumpkins, football games, and the like. We're going to add one thing to your fall calendar, and that is a strategic event that our church is doing in conjunction with a number of other churches in our city, and the date is quite memorable. Luke 10.2 encourages us to pray for laborers, to the harvest, and so we are going to take 10-2, October the 2nd, to do just that. In conjunction with about a dozen other churches in Greenville, we're going to spend 24 hours praying for God's work in our city, for the raising up of laborers, for the harvest, and for God's work around the world. We'll start at 6 a.m. on 10-2 and roll over until 6 a.m. on 10-3. The ask is that we would commit to, to not, pray, not simply praying wherever you are that day, but the value of being together with God's people to pray. So we've divided that, those 24 hours into one-hour blocks, and we're asking representatives from the churches to sign up to say, I'll commit to pray for one hour for the harvest, for laborers for the harvest, God's work around the world. We would love for you to participate in that. It's going to be hosted at Edwards Road Baptist Church, a few miles down the road, very central. All the information is on our website. As well, you can sign up for a slot at gvlpraise.com, greenvillepraise.com. We'll take you to a link where you can just say, yeah, I'll commit to 6 a.m. I'll pray from 6 to 7, or I'll pray from 6 to noon, whatever the Lord provokes in you. We're going to provide child care for moms that would have a challenge breaking free from the demands of the day from 9 to 1, 9 a.m. to 1 on that Wednesday. And again, we're just asking that everyone would take a slot. All you have to do is show up. There'll be somebody there with a prayer guide. They'll facilitate the morning. If you're uncomfortable praying with a group, you can come and just eavesdrop on prayers and pray privately with the group that's there. A beautiful opportunity for us to partner with other churches in our city to pray for the harvest. So, in a bit of an irony, let's pray for our prayer day uh, this morning as our missionary moment. And when I'm done with the prayer, our ushers are going to come and they're going to collect our giving so you can have your contact cards or your tithe uh, there to put in the offering when we're done praying. Our Father, we do bow, giving you thanks that we are in a city that has a gospel witness, that there are faithful churches that are doing exactly what we're doing this morning. They're proclaiming Christ, and they are pointing others to faithfulness. 
We thank you that in your design, your grand design, you purposed, you allotted our times and seasons. You, you were in control of us being in Greenville at this time, this place. And so we pray that we would steward that really well. That as we think about the needs around the world, as we think about the thousands upon thousands of people who've never heard the name of Jesus, the people groups that have no scripture they can read in their language, people who've never had contact with a healthy church where they can be discipled. Our, our heart grieves for that, and we long to be open-handed to leverage the abundance that we have at this time and place so that the world might know and worship Jesus. So we ask that you would uh, propel our hearts to deeper prayer, to deeper resolve, to, to, to ask really hard questions about what our role in that should be. And we pray that as we take up uh, this money now, that you would use it to further your mission here and around the world. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Ushers, you guys can come on down and begin to take up the offering. And as they do, we're going to do something that's almost never common in this setting. We're going to have a little audience participation time. We're doing audience participation time because we're dead in the middle of a series on family values, asking the question, what, what do we want to be the mark of the people at the church at Cherrydale? So what I want you to do, you got 30 seconds to do it, I want you to turn to somebody and tell them our first three family values. Test time, baby, all right? This is no autopilot church. You're not just, say them loud. First three values, go. Man, this is, this is already the best sermon I've ever preached. I've never seen so many smiles from you guys uh, during a sermon. All right, test time. We pursue Christ. We live connected. And we serve joyfully. All right, say them with me. You guys ready? Because we'll do test time again. Value number one, family value number one. We pursue Christ. Number two. We live connected. Number three, we serve joyfully. What we're saying is as a people, if an outsider was to come in, spend some time with us, and we were to ask them over a Five Guys cheeseburger, what were those people like? These are the things that we want to bubble out of us. This week, I have the opportunity for us to consider family value number four, which is a bit more of a cultural norm than perhaps some of the values we've considered Thus far, family value number four is we give generously. Now, if you're a college game day fan like I am uh, around fall season, this cultural norm was demonstrated last week as a fan at uh, the college game day stadium was called holding up a sign that said, I need money for beer with his Venmo link on the poster. <laughs> and by the end of the day, this gentleman had collected over $800,000 from strangers into his Venmo account for beer money. Now, thankfully, it seems at least, that this young man has a bit of a conscience to him, 
and turned and gave that money to a children's hospital in his area. But it demonstrates for us that culturally there's something kind of built into us that predisposes us to say, I want to I invest in something. I want to I give something. 2018, $410 billion was given by Americans to charitable causes. $410 billion, that seemed, I mean, at least for me, numbers don't compute in my head. But I bet for you, if you just consider your office, if you consider your neighborhood, if you consider your school system, you consider any domain of our society, odds are there's something built into the fabric there that says we want our people to be generous. We want them to give. People want to give to causes they believe in, and in contrast to what Jesus is going to exhort us to today, people want to be seen and known for giving to those causes. Which brings us to the consideration of this no-named widow. In Mark 12, 41 to 44, situated right in the middle of a critique of the scribes and the Pharisees, is another flip of the normal script of society. Remember from last week, our slave, the servant, who is held up as the exemplar of one who goes to the back of the line? Here, we have a no-named widow held up for us as an example, demonstrating that the divine, divine exchange rate in the economy of the kingdom of God works very differently than does our society. We see the significance of this passage in that Mark chooses it to end his description of Jesus' earthly ministry. From this point forward in Mark's gospel, we're going to turn attention to the cross, to the resurrection. But here, as if Mark is saying, this is, this is the supreme example of what it means to be a kingdom citizen, of what it means to be a disciple of mine. He chooses this widow, which demands for us at least two questions. One, what would cause a widow to do something like this? And secondly, and related to that, why does Jesus pick her as the model for a disciple? What would cause her to do something like this? And then why does Jesus hold her up as a model of a disciple? To run after those questions, I'm going to suggest five truths that we can pull from this text that help us understand the nature of generosity, both biblical generosity and then hopefully for those who are patterning our lives after Jesus, the type of generosity that should be demonstrated in our lives as well. If you're taking notes, idea number one is this, that generosity extends from an awareness of need. Generosity, I'll say it different ways, generosity is birthed from a real sense of neediness. The picture here in Mark 12 is of the courts, the treasury, these collecting chests that would have been around horn-like collection chests that you would put money in so as to make it impossible for somebody to steal from those, and a widow casting two copper coins, the smallest coin in circulation in the day, 
a very meager amount of money. Cast in contrast to the rich who are throwing silver and gold coins in. Now certainly this is not the only woman who was present at this time, but Jesus singles her out and contrasts her with the rich. Again, no name in this text. Many rich people, at the end of verse 41, and a poor widow. These are set up as opposites. Perhaps the closest encounter I've had to this is in the mountains of Peru. We're taking another group in about a month. In these mountainous villages with poverty like I've never seen, we hiked up to the top of one of the mountains, and along the very top, along the mountain range, was a fence. And the fence had guard posts stationed at various points along the way. And you could stand at the ridgeline of the mountain at the opening of the fence, and you could look off onto one side down in the valley and see abundance like we would see in major urban cities. And then you could look to your right and see destitution, unlike what you've ever seen. And these two were contrasted. They were marked out by just a fence. But it was clear which side of the fence you were on. You were either rich or you were poor. And in this case, it's clear that this woman is poor, poverty-stricken, shown by her dress, her wasted look, visible poverty that Jesus, standing at a distance, could see. The order of the original language even helps us pick, pick up on this. Mark said, this widow, the poor widow, and then he commends her. The widow is described really counterintuitively in this passage. She's described by Jesus as doing more, though everything about her is less. It's fascinating. Why, why can't she do more? What motivated her to do more? Throughout Scripture, we would see special care given to both the poor and to the widows. And here we have in one place both of those, a poor widow. In the Old Testament law, if you're familiar with stories like the book of Ruth, you pick up on these patterns that a widow that was built into the legal structure that she would be cared for by a close family member who would take her in and provide her with security. We see even in Acts 6, in passages where the widows are being neglected, and so the early church forms this team to go and make sure they are cared for. Throughout the Council of Scripture, we see that God's heart flows to those who are destitute. Example, the poor, the widow. She and those like her have been on the receiving end of need, and this positions her, in my estimation, to be one who is demonstrating generosity. Consider the extent, for us all, that most of us go to avoid being needy. In fact, we run really hard at building a life that is secure. Even though we know that wealth and accumulation ultimately will, will not satisfy. I'm going to give you a host of scripture references, some that will be on the screen, some that will not. So if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you just to jot down these references. For example, the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 5 speaks of this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. 
nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. And as if the writer of the New York Times was picking up on the scene from Ecclesiastes in an article entitled The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse, the writer says something that we know intuitively. The incredible rise in living standards for the majority of Americans and Western Europeans has made them more affluent, healthier, more comfortable, more free, and sovereign over ever taller piles of stuff. But it has not made them happier. We recognize that we run hard after padding our lives from need, and yet it seems that the need that this woman has received postures her to want to be one who gives. Friends, if you are in this, you who are in this room this morning are the rich in this world, if you were to line up the world's population by sheer wealth, all of us in the room are at the front end of the line. In a world where 1.2 billion people live on less than $1 a day, we are the rich, which means many of us are not particularly provoked to be generous to need because we do not live with a continual awareness of our own neediness. But it seems that throughout the scriptures, those who are most aware of their own need are most predisposed to generosity. Consider a very familiar passage on this subject from 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Out of their extreme poverty, they were able to demonstrate generosity. In fact, they were lavish in their generosity. I don't think it's a mistake that their poverty, their awareness of need, heightened their sense of need, which made it more likely that they were predisposed to be open-handed. Secondly, generosity aims for obedience. Generosity's aim is obedience. And then parenthetically, I would suggest it aims at obedience and does not aim at the praise of people. It aims at obedience and not the praise of people. Notice the contrast that Mark provides here in the text. He chooses language carefully. He says the rich are, are putting in. And then here this widow, in, in my version, drops in. You can imagine the scene. You're standing on the sidelines watching their giving. And you see Mr. Such-and-Such walk through. And he, you know, is one who's predisposed to big gifts. Your heart and mind and eyes are attentive to what is he going to throw in. And you're attuned enough in that culture to know the sound that silver or gold make when they enter the collection boxes. And then this shy lady, with her head down, comes through and drops in two simple coins. Coins that, because of their composition, make barely any noise. 
who is great here. Well, Jesus says there's something particularly great about the gift of this poor widow. Her dropping in is what Jesus is, is after. In fact, those who do more or aim at something else continually draw his ire. Consider just earlier in Mark 12, verse 38. He also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. And then, as quite the act of contrast, right, what follows on the heels of that? One who devours widows' houses and then this widow who Jesus says she gets it. Generosity aims for obedience. Generosity is, is shy. It tests what I really believe and what I am doing. Am I doing this to be seen by others, or am I doing this out of worshipful obedience to God? In contrast to what we considered last week, this act of serving joyfully, perhaps this is even a harder one to get our minds around because for many of us, our giving will never be seen by another. I mean, there's a certain built-in act of fulfillment in standing before you and preaching the scriptures, any of us that have the opportunity to do that. There's a feedback loop. There are many Sunday afternoons text message streams with, that was a blessing to me. That was an encouragement. Thank you for using your gifts. And that brings joy to my heart and to others who do it. But those who give, give generously, give anonymously. Through the last many years of our church, the way that I am here able to do and have the freedom to do what I do is because of generous givers that you don't know. And were they not generous, I'm not here doing this. There's at least two ways that we aim for obedience in our generosity. One is through our regular giving. Through our regular giving. A pattern established from the Old Testament that giving functions as a means of expressing worship. Think about the sacrificial system for a minute. Sacrifices cost the worshiper something. They're an investment. And in fact, the scale of that investment shifted based on the socioeconomic standing of the people. The more they had, the more they were expected to give. And this generous giving was meant to provide for regular worship. For the tribe, the Levites, for temple instruments that were used to facilitate ongoing worship, this regular patterned giving was a means of expressing worship to God and a means for providing for the worship of God in this corporate setting. This pattern continues in the New Testament. If you're writing scripture references here, 2 Corinthians 9, 12, this ministry, this giving, is supplying for us for the needs of the saints. It's providing for us, regular, ongoing giving is providing for the needs of the people of God. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul writes that this regular pattern giving is also providing for those who are pastoring and leading the church. Let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. There's built-in structure in the life of the church that the people of the church provide for the pastors of the church. They provide double honor, the position of pastor, honor, and the pay for a pastor, honor. So in a very real way, your work, whatever that work is doing, is providing for elders who hopefully rule well and labor in preaching and teaching. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul also writes, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I'm gone. If you're familiar with the New Testament letters, you recognize that Paul was taking up collection consistently so that on his travel he could bless people and need. And he says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have some kind of regular rhythm where you're setting something aside that can go into this pot so that these needs can be met. So I don't have to, like, when I show up, go through the ranks of collecting from each of you, but you've been consistent and disciplined in setting this aside. So we would see a pattern in the New Testament for for regular generosity, specifically among the people of God, for leadership and for the meeting of needs. It's interesting to me, uh, I didn't think about it till this week, but this value of giving generously is value number four in, in our list, and in a very real way is the connective tissue to all the other values. It helps us through the preaching and teaching of the word, through the leadership of the pastors. It helps us pursue Christ together. The generosity, our giving, helps us facilitate life together as consistently we're able to be a means of blessing to the people of God. It helps us in our service, and as we'll see next week and following, it helps us in our outwardly facing mission. I do want to provide one note of encouragement to you. In regards to this regular generosity, you are an exceedingly generous church. Uh, For as young as our church is, you guys have been a source of blessing and encouragement through your regular giving. I do want to encourage you to consistently review the type of giving that you're doing uh, as a family or as an individual so that you are prayerfully aware of that giving. Consistently among our members, a very high percentage, very high percentage of our giving comes in through our online portal. And a high percentage of that high percentage comes in through automated gifts through that online portal. Isn't that what online giving was created? It was to take the guesswork out of it for you. Just like, I'm going to at the first day of the month have this amount deducted from my bank account. I'm not condemning that. In fact, I do the very same thing. But what I do want to press into you is to say that can, if you're not careful, take your hands off of what is meant to be an act of worshipful obedience. It can become another bill that you're paying, and that's not what we want to create in the generosity of the people of God. So we encourage you when the plates are passed consistently, if you give online to like orient your heart to I, I, like, laid something in the plate when it came by. This was an act of obedience for me. For some of you, it might mean not giving online. 
You know, it's like scary, and I'm like, no, nah, I'd really kind of rather your automated giving be in there. That's really good. But for some of you, just as an act of really reorienting your heart to, I give as an act of obedience. We don't want to automate the process such that we don't think about it. Secondly, uh, to regular giving would be uh, need-based giving. Need-based giving. Or perhaps I, I should have said opportunity-based giving. Consider this from Galatians 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The idea there being, if God has given us an opportunity to meet a need, then we should be predisposed to do that. Ephesians 4, verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Workers among us. Is that your heart posture with your vocation? No, I mean, there, there are three options here in the text. Option number one is, or encouragement, don't be a thief. Don't steal. Don't mooch off of people. Do hard work. Work with your hands. Be responsible. Option two is, I work so I can have. I do this work, I deserve this pay, and I do it so that my socioeconomic status can continue to tick up. But what Paul encourages us here is a radical reorientation. I work to have to give. a posture of open-handedness that says, this money's just passing through. I'm just redistributing the money. And the widow here in this passage reminds us that it does not matter your state of wealth. There's no baseline of I'm too poor to do that. Even when you are in a state of need, you should demonstrate generosity, which then allows for an easy exhortation to you, 19-year-old. Don't wait until you believe you've got enough money to be generous in the same way that you should not wait until you get to India to share the gospel. $5 of generosity on a meager income trains the habits of your heart such that if God entrusts more to your care, you demonstrate that same level of generosity. So, are you known as a generous person? Are you looking for every opportunity to do good? Are you known as the kind of person who overdoes it in the right areas? We can all overdo it in the wrong areas, but we don't want to go in the ditch on the other side and be so stingy in every area of life that we never just lavishly give. Are you the kind of person that's known for overdoing it in the right ways? Thirdly, generosity flows through a self-sacrificial spirit. She gave two coins. She could have given one coin. She gave, as Mark says, in such a way that left her without means for her next meal. 
This is why, though money is not the only outlet for generosity, it's a really good example for us. Because money inherently comes with a cost. It's easier to say, well, I'm, I'm allocating my time, I'm being generous with my time. Is that a demonstration of generosity? Absolutely. But generosity with your financial resources comes with a cost. It comes with a sacrificial cost. And that scale is different for us all. Here, she gave all that she had to live on. Mark 14, just following. He's in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, of pure nard. She broke the the jar, she poured it out on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. But here in this case, Jesus says what she did was right and good. Now clearly, her investment here is far in excess to what this widow, these two little coins. But in both cases, the giving, the generosity, was sacrificial. It cost something. The relative amounts are not what's in question. What's in question is a heart that demonstrates costly sacrifice. And this is why in New Testament giving, there's not a, like an obligation. We're, we're, not, we're free to give. And, friends, I would suggest free to purpose in our heart how much we're going to give. Perhaps the baseline threshold is, is not a percentage. It's certainly not a dollar amount. But it is, does your giving cost you? Does your giving, do you feel it? Sacrifice, in this way, trains us to the type of self-denial that's meant to be an overall mark of a disciple of Jesus. If your giving costs you nothing, you need to turn up the temperature such that it does because you've got to have some training in that type of self-denial in all of life. Last two points. Number four, generosity demands deep trust in God. It demands deep trust in God. She gave all that she had to live on, which the outcome of that type of statement then, then, then says she's posturing herself in such a way that says God's got to come through. God's got to come through. This is the outworking of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about tomorrow. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. He's going to care for you. Most of us, unfortunately, never voluntarily put ourselves in places that demand God coming through for us. And I think this comes at great cost to our discipleship and maturity. God is a giver. He provides, and he withholds. Giving generosity puts feet to our stated theology. It's easy to say God provides. It's far more difficult to live lives that demand it. Fifthly, 
Generosity produces a model of Christ-likeness. It produces a model of Christ-likeness. Notice at the end of this passage, Jesus does the exact same thing we saw him do last week. He summons the people together. He uses this as a teaching opportunity, and we see the introduction that's very, very common as you read the Gospels. Truly, truly, I say to you, right? Get your attention. I want you to look. Then he holds this woman up and says, she, she's a model of discipleship. She gave, they all gave out of surplus. She, out of her poverty, put in everything that she had. Follow her path. What did Jesus know that we often miss? He knew the, the dangers of a life that doesn't demonstrate generosity. He knew the reality of Luke 8, 14, that riches, unlike so many other areas of life, have a unique ability to choke out the word. He knew, as Luke writes in Luke 18, how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. He knew what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we should be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He knew the truth of the wisdom writers. Better is little that the righteous have than abundance in the house of the wicked. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble in it. Better is a dinner of herbs with love than a fattened ox with hatred. He knew the truth of a persecuted pastor in Romania who said, in my experience, 95% of the believers who face the test of persecution will pass it. But 95% of those who face the test of prosperity will fail. How, how are you doing, church? How are you doing with your relative prosperity? In a very real way, this woman gave all that she had and in so doing serves as a model for us all of Christ's likeness. She gave her life and in so doing, she found it. We're still talking about her today. Consider the model that she sets for us from 2 Corinthians 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by your earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in your poverty, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. There's a certain beauty in this widow's testimony 
of two little copper coins that clang through the centuries. And as we hear them rattle in our ears this morning, they remind us of a far richer, more superior one, God himself, who laid aside his riches and took on the form of a servant, destitute, no place to lay his head, such that through his self-giving generosity, you, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of the house that you live in, regardless of the clothes that you can afford, you who are in Christ are rich because someone else gave. And in following that pattern, may we as a family be marked as those who give generously. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we bow thanking you for the opportunity to to live open-handed lives. We we recognize this morning that that really two two ways you're either going to pry our hands off of our stuff or or we're going to open them in an act of worship. And so would you in the, this space Allow the sound of those two copper coins to ring in our ear such that, that, that in smaller, big ways we, we start to, to open, open our hands, open our, our eyes, open our hearts to, to need that's all around us. God, would you, would you in your grace please, please help the riches of this life not choke out your word among your people here at Cherrydale. Would you, would you make, make us fearful even of, of what that affluence can do in us? And would you cause us to really like actively seek ways to be a blessing to, to, to those that you put in our path? Thank you for the honor it is to have an entrustment of your stuff. And, and we want to be the kind of people that steward it really well. As we sing and as we think about the one who was rich and became poor willingly, would that set a sacrificial pattern for us as we seek to follow your great example? We ask that so that Jesus, his fame, would be known and worshipped here and around the world. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.